Now, brothers and sisters, it's with great excitement that I will tell you to open up your Bibles to the letter of Ephesians, where we will, of course, be spending our time together not only this morning, but for the course of the entire summer as we dig into the riches of this glorious epistle, which, by which we see the beauty of the gospel on full display. But I do want to say that before we get into reading the book, because we'll be here all summer, I do want to spend a little bit of an extended time together giving sort of the background and the context of this book. I think that this will be really helpful for us as we begin to read this book. It will help us to read it and know it for all it's worth. And so I'll start by saying that were we to zoom out and to think of Ephesians within the grand scheme of Scripture, within all the other books and its place particularly in the New Testament, I think it would be fair to say or to think of it as a summary or maybe a compendium of the grandest themes of Paul's gospel that he proclaims in his 12 other letters in the New Testament. This is the good news that he has sent to proclaim in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. But while this is the case, that the book is sort of this summary, one of the fascinating features of the letter is that unlike many of the other New Testament letters, which are clearly written in in response to particular situations that demand apostolic instruction from Paul, the letter of Ephesians has no such precipitating factors. There's not really anything in the letter that Paul is talking to and addressing specifically in the church in Ephesus. It's meant then, I think, to be read as a general encouragement. In fact, many scholars believe that the book of Ephesians was written not just to the Ephesians, but actually to the churches around Ephesus. And this brings up uh, an important point. Paul had spent m- many times, or much time, preaching to these people. And so he didn't need to go into total detail. We can think of the letter of Ephesians, it's only six chapters, whereas the book of Romans, for example, is 16, or the books of First and Second Corinthians are in the low teens. Those are much larger books of Paul's work, and this is a bit shorter. And so this helps us to to call to mind the fact that Paul spent much time in person with the Ephesians several years before writing this letter. And the book of Acts, in fact, tells us that he spent a total of about three years in person with the church there, which was one of his longest stops along his missionary journeys. So he would have known these Christians well. And during these years, he labored daily, preaching the gospel, first, as we're told in in Acts, to the Jewish people located there in their synagogue for about three months. And then for the remainder of his time, he turned, because of their hard-heartedness and their rejection, he turned and started preaching or teaching in a little interesting spot called the Hall of Tyrannus, which nobody really knows exactly what that was. It may have been a public forum where philosophers and thinkers were able to teach their ideas. So he worked amongst the Gentiles. And as we've been seeing in our Sunday evening services, 
here at church, and as we've been walking through the book of Acts for the past year, one of the most heated issues in Paul's missionary work that comes up all throughout that book is the tensions of bringing together the Jews and the Greeks, the reconciliation that is happening between them. And as it happens, Ephesus was quite a unique city with a unique situation as it pertains to both Jews and to Gentiles, or the Greeks as they're so often called. For one thing, it's well known that in the ancient period, it was a major port city in a region known then as Asia or Asia Minor, but which is today modern-day Turkey. And this meant that its location, as you can see behind me, was right between the major cities of Greece, where I've put a red dot near Athens, and, and it's all, so it's in between Athens then and the city of Jerusalem, the Judean region where the Jews were located. And this kind of gave it a really great position within the greater Roman Empire so that it was able to be a very... Uh, productive and a very wealthy area because of its commerce. And so if we put this all together, we can see that Ephesus was a pretty happening place. Because it was a port city, it was a wealthy city. And because it was a wealthy city, it was a city that was sort of a religious melting pot, you might say. Not only did it have the religious Jews, but it also had the religious Greeks. And it was home, in fact, to the goddess Artemis whose famous temple in Ephesus was not only one of the seven wonders of the world, but also, by the time of Paul and the New Testament, had been around for a little over 600 years, which was more than long enough for this religion, this worship of Artemis, to have become a deeply embedded feature of Ephesian identity. In this way, Artemis was kind of like, you might say, the city's leading sports team, and that she was the uniting force of the Ephesians' life together. In much the same way that New York, you see everybody wearing Yankees hats. And that's one uniting feature that kind of brings diverse people together. And this is an important piece of the puzzle for the book of Ephesians as we get into it. Because back in Acts chapter 19, which is where we come across the story of Christianity's arrival in the city of Ephesus we find some of the more bizarre and dramatic episodes recorded in that book. First, we see an encounter that Paul has with a dozen men who have been baptized under the baptism of John the Baptist, but who had not yet been baptized or heard of the baptism of Jesus and had not yet received the Holy Spirit. And so Paul baptizes them, and immediately they begin to speak in tongues and to prophesy, having received the Spirit. Next, then, comes the story of the infamous seven sons of Sceva, who we've, many of us have heard of. They were a sort of a traveling band of Jewish uh, exorcists who would go around and use different Jewish rites and ceremonies in, in order to try to free people from the oppression of demonic activity. And so they had seen some of Paul's healings that happened actually through people touching some of Paul's belongings. And they begin to think that this Jesus that Paul has been telling our Jewish people about, he must really be quite powerful. And so they begin to use his name sort of as a mantra in order to exercise demons. And of course, if we know the story... There's a particular man that they are trying to to do this with, and they are using Christ's name, they are invoking the name of the Lord, 
And the man with the oppression of a demon says to him, Jesus, I know. Paul, I recognize. But who are you? And then he proceeds to beat them up and to mock them so badly that they are sent running out of this building naked and battered and bruised. And then with this, as Acts chapter 19 wears on, one starts to get the sense that just under the surface, there's a lot of spiritual activity happening in this city. A lot of spiritual warfare. As the light of the gospel is now beginning to shine, we can see that darkness is kicking and scratching and clawing against it. And this all comes to a head in the final part of the chapter when Paul's ministry begins finally after his long time there to make a dent in the Ephesian cult worship of Artemis. And it's begun to be felt on the, in the pocketbooks, particularly of the guild of silversmiths in the city, who begin to notice that they are going to be losing a lot of money because people now are converting to this Christian gospel And so now their sort of income is under threat. And so feigning worship and honor of Artemis, they begin to rally people together in the streets. And they begin to move against Paul and his companions. And so enraged by their loss of income, they get people together and everyone starts to chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! And the scene becomes so crazy and intense that a riot then soon breaks out in the city and things descend into even more chaos. And though we are told in the course of this narrative that Paul is kept safe, two of his Christian disciples do get sort of sucked into this whole thing. They get found by this mob and dragged into the city's amphitheater, which I believe there will be a slide for. Uh, at which point, yeah, so here in this amphitheater, they are They are brought in, and this amphitheater holds, uh, scholars say, about 25,000 people, and it would have been full to the brim. And they drag before them these Christians, and everything is getting really complex and confusing. People can't hear exactly what's going on. There's all sorts of rumors about what is happening and why they're even there. Many people aren't even sure what's going on. They just know that everybody's out, and we're all here. We're doing something important. And thankfully, things do begin to settle down, finally, with the intervention of the city clerk who warns that if things continue at this pace, the Roman authorities will have to get involved and that's going to be bad for all of us. And so they all listen to him and they begin to quiet down. And thankfully, we can see in all of this, I think one important point that we should really grasp, things in Ephesus were spiritually dark. It was a dark world where spiritual entities and beings and powers were at work. They were under a strong spell, we might say, of real spiritual evil. Not only in the form of individual demonic oppression for the one man, but of citywide demonic paganism, which had become so widespread and entrenched that if it was threatened, it could take an otherwise peaceful populace and turn it into an angry, violent mob. And so as we make our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we'll certainly want to keep all of these sort of spiritual realities in mind, as the apostle has much to say in this letter regarding the so-called powers and principalities. And in addition to this, the story also presents us with one other key narrative thread 
uh, for understanding Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we've already sort of mentioned it, but that's the Jew-Gentile reconciliation project. That's something that is very prominent in the letter uh, to the Ephesians. As I've already mentioned, when Paul and his companions first arrived in the city, they spent a few months specifically targeting their witness towards the Jews, and then because of their hard-heartedness, they begin to turn towards the Gentiles. Interestingly, the fact that the Jews were even allowed to have a synagogue in the city of Ephesus, uh, it, it wasn't actually all that uncommon, and it helps us to see that they did have some measure of religious freedom. But it's widely believed that the only reason that the Jews were allowed to come was because it allowed for trade to happen between Jews and Gentiles. And so by no means were relations between Jews and Gentiles warm and fuzzy. It was mostly an economic relationship that they had with, with each other. They were happy to do business together for financial gain, but that was about as far as it went. The Jews, of course, were a minority group outside of their native homeland in Judea. And for many historical reasons, as well as theological ones, they tended to view the Gentiles, as we know, with a pronounced level of disgust. They saw them as unclean. Even often they would compare them to dogs, as people who were lesser than and who were totally unworthy unless they really tried really hard to become a part of God's covenant chosen people. And likewise, for their part, the Gentiles were deeply suspicious of the Jews. Given their strange customs and their monotheistic worship, they looked upon them with suspicion. Not to mention that the Jews were also prone to rebellion. They often would breathe threats of sedition and rebellion against the Roman Empire. And this would have threatened then the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. The Jews hated the Roman Empire for what they had done in subjugating their people. They had a lot of antipathy and anger towards them. And so it's no surprise then that in the Acts, which we've, or in the, in the riot of the book of Acts in chapter 19, the Jews, they didn't want to take the fall for the preaching of a fellow Jew named Paul who had caused all of this commotion. And so because They didn't want to take the fall. And when they were all in the theater, they put forward a man named Alexander, who who they put forward, and he comes up and he begins to motion with his hand, trying to get people's attention. This, of course, is before the city clerk gets up and speaks. And we read this in the book of Acts, in chapter 19, verse 34. When the crowd recognized that Alexander was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Once again, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Imagine that for two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So with this, we see that the Jews' political nightmare had become a reality. They were now being lumped in with Paul and his traveling companions. They had hoped to disavow and to distance themselves from what Paul was doing and from his teaching, but because of their common ethnicity, they were mistakenly lumped in with them. And we can imagine then that their relationships between the Jews and the Gentiles in the city of Ephesus from that point on 
were continuing to be quite difficult. And so with all of this background in mind, we can see three grand themes begin to emerge. Themes that I think will be crucial to our study of Ephesians this summer. The first, of course, is the gospel. Paul brings this good news into the city and he begins announcing it to all who will listen. To the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. And though it's met by stern opposition on both sides, it's clearly used by the Spirit to bring salvation to many. The second theme, then, is these Jew-Gentile hostilities between the two peoples. Ephesus, like so many other cities spread throughout the empire, was a pressure cooker when it came to these two groups being together. The The division between them and the animosity between them was rife. And so we'll want to keep an eye on this issue as we read through the letter, because it plays a major role. And finally, the third theme that we absolutely cannot miss is the powers of the spiritual realm, the presence of which permeates the entire letter to the Ephesians. You may recall, for example, the famous sixth chapter in which a lot of mention is made of the armor of God and the spiritual warfare that Christians are called into. And you may think that that's just an interesting uh, or a happy accident at the end of the book, but I'm telling you, this theme pervades the book from beginning to end. And so actually, that chapter is really just a fitting conclusion to a book that talks much about spiritual realities. And so now, having gotten a firm grasp of everything, we'll read in just a moment. But as we do, keep two questions in your mind as we read. As the church, who does Paul tell us that we are? And similarly, as the church, what does Paul say is our purpose? So who are we and what is our purpose? Let's pray and then we'll read. Our Heavenly Father, we come to your word, recognizing our own sin, recognizing our own darkness, recognizing our inability to understand things properly without your revelation. And even with your revelation, Lord, we know that we need your spirit to guide and to illuminate for us, or else it will be mere words on a page. And so, Lord, we pray that as we turn to read Ephesians 1 this morning, that the Spirit, that He would enlighten our minds, that we may know Your truth and live by it. That we may know who we are and what we have been called to in this world. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Ephesians 1, verses 1 through 23. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will 
to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of, the, of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a lot to be said for the old famous saying that sometimes the truth is stranger than fiction. And such is the case, at least in my opinion, with any story that has to do with traumatic injuries to the human brain. Perhaps you've heard of some. There's an old famous story, for example, from the 19th century in the United States. I forget exactly the details where a, a metal stake or nail uh, goes through a man's brain and he becomes totally uninhibited. He has no filter for his morality and begins to do all sorts of crazy things he would have never done before. But another story, one from much more recent memory, is one that you may actually be familiar with. It's the story of a man who was found one day in August 2004 who had been badly beaten up and unconscious and was discovered laying behind a dumpster at a Burger King in a town called Richmond Hill in Georgia, just outside of the city of Savannah. And so as the story goes, once this man was, was found and he was taken into the hospital and he finally came to, it quickly became apparent that his brain injuries or his head injuries had resulted in a very severe case of amnesia. 
such that he no longer had any idea even who he was, where he was from, or what he was doing in the state of Georgia. But oddly enough, he could remember a few specific details of his distant childhood. They were sort of hazy, hazy memories, but they were still there. Among these memories were the, the memory of eating grilled cheese sandwiches and buying them for 25 cents at the Indiana State Fair. Another one was watching a movie in the 70s called Car Wash at a movie theater in Denver, Colorado. So something in Indiana, something in Denver. It must have been very confusing. But try as he might, he could not remember who he was. He couldn't remember his family origins. He couldn't remember his life story, his line of work, what he did for a career. And he couldn't, of course, remember his own name. And so because the police had found him and they had given him the identity because they didn't know who he was, they put on his report, B.K. Doe, Burger King Doe. And eventually, in following this sort of B.K. idea, he started to believe that his name actually may have been Benjamin, with two A's, Benjamin Kyle, B.K. And for the Next several years, that was his identity. Now, his story is well documented, and he even made it onto the Dr. Phil show at one point in the late 2000s. But as we hear the story, I think we can begin to feel a profound uh, feeling of sympathy for him. Because the thought of memory loss, if you've ever thought of what that would feel like, I think that's a rightly, a very fearful uh, thing to consider. Whether it's sudden, as in his case, or whether it's gradual, uh, it, it, it terrifies us. And I think that this is because, in many ways, our memories are who we are. We won't have a proper sense of ourself without memories. Memories help us to know where we are at in our life story, helps us to know who we have known, and who we are, and where we're going. And so without them, we can begin to feel lost at sea. And this is because we are story creatures. We have been given a home and created by God in time and space to know and to be known, to love and to be loved in God, in this place, with the people that he has given us. And so life only makes sense insofar as we know our story, our background, the people that we've known, so that we can, again, know who we are and who we are now, who we have been, and where we are headed in the future. And I'm sure, of course, that as I even say these things, our beloved brothers and sisters who are right now, as we speak, gathered across the street at Beth Haven, worshiping together, that they are nodding their heads in agreement. They know that our ability to remember, our memories, are a gift given to us by God. Gifts that we must use and train and appreciate every day. And so what do I mean by this idea of using our memories for God in order to glorify Him? Well, it all goes back to those two questions that I told you to keep in mind as we read. Who are we and what is our mission in this world? What is our purpose? There are a ton of amazing truths and of cosmic proportions here in the book of of Ephesians in chapter 1. But we could maybe break it all down, all of what Paul has just written, which is very long sentences, by the way. So there's a lot to take in. 
we could break it all down into two major segments, which I think our ESVs actually helpfully break up for us in our pew Bibles. Helps us to see that who we are and what our purpose is. This, the first is seen in verses 3 through 14, and the second are, can be seen in verses 15 through 23. So in the first, the first thing we notice is that Paul frames his teaching of the Ephesian church's identity not merely as a straightforward, basic lesson. Hey, guys, listen up. This is who you are. Point A, point B, point C. No, he doesn't do that. He much more powerfully declares to them their identity by offering a hymn of praise. And this is why he starts in verse 3 with the words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We get the sense here that Paul is not so much speaking as a teacher, but more so as a choir director, a choir singer, who's guiding us into his song of praise. And as the section unfolds, he pulls out all the stops to tell the Ephesian church who they are, to remind them of who they are. And to do so, he stacks up many powerful descriptors and images and reminders of the Father's love for them, the Son's grace to them, and the Spirit's power in them. He wants them to remember who they are. He, he wants to shape, you might say, their theological memories, as it were, so that they can know their true identity. And so he reminds them, surely repeating here with powerful force, all that he had taught to them those ten or so years before when he was with them. He tells them that in Christ they have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So they, everything, all the blessings are found in Jesus, in him. Nothing comes to us apart from our union with Christ. He also says that in Christ they have been lovingly chosen before the foundation of the world and predestined for adoption as God's Son. It was no accident that the, the Gentiles would have been included in God's covenant people. No, Paul is saying, from time immemorial, time before time, the Lord in His eternality knew and loved you and called you. Third, in Christ they have been redeemed, forgiven, and lavished with grace through His blood. And so they have been, again, blessed in Christ with all of these things. Purchased by, by God. That's what that word redemption means. Purchased. Uh, taken from their slavery to sin, and now they have been transferred into the kingdom of light, as Colossians tells us. They've been forgiven. They've been washed. They have been made new. And finally, in Christ, they have been given an inheritance and sealed with the Holy Spirit. All of these things in Christ. Now, think for just a moment how all of this would have felt for the Jewish Christians in this congregation, who likely still would have struggled to accept and welcome Gentile brothers and sisters as full members of God's people and who themselves had come to know the feelings of exclusion and rejection now from their fellow Jewish neighbors who repudiated the gospel. These Jewish Christians in Ephesus would have been in a really tricky spot, feeling judgmental towards the Gentiles, but also feeling judged and excluded by their fellow Jewish kinsmen. Paul had just told them that all the Christians in Ephesus, both they and the Gentiles now, are included in God's people. They are loved and predestined and called into this people. 
Conversely, then, we might think about how encouraging these reminders must have been for the Gentiles in the congregation. For them, as the years dragged on and as they were looked upon with disdain by former friends and family members and as tensions with Jews outside the church and even inside their church continued to simmer with all kinds of difficulties, it would have been such a wonderful and powerful encouragement to be reminded that the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in His eternal wisdom and will, had chosen you, loved you, and moved heaven and earth by dying for you, all that you may have a place within his family to be a son who is given an inheritance that is yet to come. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ indeed. What other response could we possibly have? This is the good news for us. This, brothers and sisters, is who we are. Not only is it true for the Ephesian church, but it's true for Ammon Valley today as well. In Christ, because of our union with him by faith, which has been brought about through the power of the Spirit, this is the story to which we belong. This is the people to whom we belong as well. But Paul doesn't end there, of course, whereas in the first section we have now seen his hymn of praise. In the final section, uh, he now offers up a prayer for knowledge by which they might come to know their mission, their purpose in the world. And so here again, Paul stacks up a pile of lofty statements and turns of phrase, making it clear that his prayer for the church Uh, just like her mission before God, is grand and elaborate and beautiful. But nevertheless, we can make sense of his teaching here, his prayer here. And as I said, it is ultimately a prayer for knowledge, for knowledge. He wants them to know. And this can be seen from the end of verse 17, where he says that his prayer for the Ephesian church is that God, quote, may give them the spirit of wisdom, and of revelation in the knowledge of him. The knowledge of him. And we see this again in verse 18 as he continues saying, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. So he wants them to know those three things. Their hope, that which their story entails for them in the future, what they are all moving towards, the great hope of the consummation of all things in Christ as he unites heaven and earth and the new heavens and the new earth. He wants them also to know their rich inheritance, their past, present, and future blessings, all of which have been given to them and guaranteed to them in Christ. And finally, he wants them to know very importantly, the immeasurable greatness of God's power towards them as believers. And this last one, in this last one, he goes off sort of on what may seem to be a classic Pauline rabbit hole, if, you're, uh, if you know what I mean. Uh, you may think that he's kind of going off in another direction and you're not quite sure where he's going. And it, maybe it seems like it's kind of uh, beside the point that he's getting at. But it's actually, I would, I would say, really the thesis statement of the whole book. It's all driving towards this end. Paul is not making an accident here. And so it's worth reading verses 19 through 21 in full. In the final part of Paul's prayer for us, he wants us to know, 
he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so in wanting us to know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward all who believe, Paul goes on to explain that this power is the same power by which Christ himself was raised and ascended into the heavenly places, which is now the spiritual location from which, Paul tells us in verse 21, that Christ now reigns far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. And so, in other words, all of the power which Christ has has been given toward us. It has been, it is behind us, you might say. It is pushing us on. It is at our fingertips because God so loves us. The power which Christ was raised by and ascended into heaven is now ours. God gives it to us to preserve us, to strengthen us, to embolden us for mission in this world. Now, Ephesus, as we've seen, was a hotbed for spiritual paganism. It was infested with the workings of the unseen realm. And unlike we moderns today, the Christians there would have been well aware of the existence of such powers, of demons and entities that are at work, that they could not see with their own eyes, per se, but whose influence was very palpable and evident. They'd heard and seen of the demon-possessed man who had singly, single-handedly overpowered the seven sons of Sceva, and they'd even seen firsthand how the power of Artemis held so much sway over this whole city that, again, she could take a peaceful town and turn it into a violent mob. Thus, we might do well to think of the ways in which evil powers and principalities are still at work even in our own day. And though I suspect that for various reasons they tend in our modern Western world to operate behind masks and cloaks, as it were, so as to remain undetectable as anything other than that which can be explained scientifically, I do think we can recognize them nonetheless in powerful movements and governments and ideologies, for example, which stand steadfastly opposed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that stand opposed to God's law, stand opposed to God's justice and God's goodness. And so for the anxiety-prone Ephesians, who would have been living in this difficult world in the first century, as well as for the anxiety-prone Christians of the 21st, Paul concludes his prayer with a powerful reminder in verses 22 and 23. Where he says to us, and he, that is the Father, put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. In short, all of the fearsome powers and principalities which threaten both the Ephesians as well as us have now been placed under the feet of Christ. They have been made his tiny little footstool. 
A statement which harks back to Psalm 110, the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. And it underscores the supremacy of Christ's lordship over all things. And thus, in what might be my own personal favorite hymn of all time, the little German monk-turned-reformer Martin Luther wrote these words. And you'll be familiar with them, I'm sure. And though this world with devils filled, should threaten to undo us. We will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. And so, Christian, take heart. Remember who you are as a chosen, loved, and adopted son in Christ. This is God's mission to show and reveal to the powers of darkness through his church, which he has predestined and chosen and now died for and redeemed in Christ to be as a living witness to the weak powers of the present age. This is our identity. This is our mission. In 2015, some 11 years after his rescue behind the Burger King dumpster in Richmond Hill, Georgia, and with the help now of genetic detectives who had been tracing his family tree through modern marvels of science, They discovered that the man who had been going by the name of Benjamin Kyle was actually a different man. They discovered who he really was. William Burgess Powell. Born August 29th, 1948 in Lafayette, Indiana. And in the wake of the discovery of his new identity, Mr. Powell was given what is perhaps the most fitting gift he could have finally received. For the years in between this discovery, he had no legal identity. He had no idea who he was, and the state, the government, could not figure out who he was, and therefore he had no way of getting a job or being in a home. He lived in shelters that that whole time. So he was finally given the most fitting gift of all, a newly minted identity card. Likewise, brothers and sisters, we might say, with the words of Ephesians chapter 1, we have been given a new identity. This is who we are, and this is what God is doing through us. We who have not been a people have now been made a people in order to show the powers of this world and the powers of the spiritual world, the power and glory and majesty of God. Amen? Let's pray.